have had for this week. A big piece of news coming out with the death of one of our Supreme Court justices, the beloved Ruth Bader Ginsburg, kind of wrote the wrote the topic for our conversation today as it stands. Indeed. So, I mean, I, I personally found her incredibly inspiring and all of the things that she had to go through and break through to get even half of the places that she went. Um, I hope that I can only make half as much impact as she was able to do. Yeah, same. Uh, and I mean, I think, you know, for me, I have found out uh, early Saturday morning, because uh, I know it happened Friday and I've been trying to be more intentional about just not <laughs> engaging with tech sometimes. Um, so I found out a little bit later than I think everyone else. But, you know, I, I think, you know, um, Justice Ginsburg has a certain affinity, especially to like people who are legally trained, um, just because you read so much of these folks and, and you start to feel like, you know, it's like anything, right? It's like any art, you know what I mean? You, you engage with it enough, you feel like you know the individual, um, one, but then two, you know, I, one of the things that frustrated me a little bit is just how, um, how quick the, the break to just discussing what she held rather than who she was, you know, seemed like was the primary sort of takeaway for a lot of people, which, you know, we're going to talk a lot about today. So, you know, you, you can't, you can't occupy a seat and, and have a life that sort of big and there not be implications to that when you transition. So I get that. But I think just the one thing I want to acknowledge from the get go is that she was a fantastic jurist. Um, but prior to her appointment to the bench in 1993, she was uh, an incredible, you know, activist for, you know, gender equality and for women in general, uh, and just for human beings in general. I think the world, I, I put it to you this way, the, the world is, uh, when, when folks pass away, sometimes the world stays the same, sometimes it gets better, and sometimes it gets worse. Uh, I don't believe everyone's worth mourning. I always say that openly. Um, and that's just kind of fact. And I'm sure people, you know, there are some people who say the same thing about me. It is what it is. But I think the world's a worse place with, uh, with Justice Ginsburg on it. And, you know, just, uh, uh, <clears throat> just wanted to, you know, say appreciation for, um, for her life and what she brought to, to just not just, you know, United States, not just to women, but I think to, to forward and progressive policies all across the world. That being said, unfortunately, um, there is this thing that happens when uh, one lifetime appointment either retires or passes away. Uh, it's that another lifetime appointment uh, has to be appointed. And uh, I think that makes this conversation all the more, like in a way, I think the way in which we mourn her right now is so greatly impacted by just the political landscape in general. Um, and I think that's what makes it a little bit more tough to sort of reconcile everything that's going on. And to some extent, we're not mourning her at all because we've been immediately forced into jumping into the politics part. Very of true. Very true. And that's a shame, honestly. And, yeah. and, and, and she, you know, like I said, it's not just her time on the bench, which was remarkable. And, you know, I, I honestly, you could say she was a little bit of a late, not a late bloomer, but as far as like her celebrity, I mean, that's, that's pretty recent, you know, maybe the past, you know, 10 or 15 years, I think, especially once um, Justice O'Connor, you know, left the bench. And so it was kind of like she was the only woman on the court at that time. And, you know, at that point, imagine this, like in 2006, there was this, we look back on it and like, it might 
you know, be like, oh, that wasn't that much of a swing. But the, at the time, you know, there is this talk of like, oh, the court is swinging so far to the right. Um, and so I think that left her in a peculiar position and one where she probably felt, and I'm not, you know, I don't know her, I didn't speak to anybody, but you can imagine she probably felt a little uh, alone, uh, both from like a practical standpoint, like a now being the only woman on the court again, but also just, you know, I think, I think O'Connor to Alito uh, is a pretty, uh, pretty big swing, not just yeah, but she, I mean, that's, that was her. That was how yeah. she lived her whole life. She was the only woman in law school. She was the only woman at the law firm. You know, she's the only woman appearing in court before a lot of these judges. I mean, it's, it's where she, you know, I would, she, it's a space she occupied. And I wouldn't say that it was a comfortable space because I can't imagine it ever was, you know, having faced, you know, even a small percentage of the gender discrimination that she faced um, in her life. But, you know, it was a space she was, she was at least comfortable operating within because she had experience operating within it. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, and I, I think her earlier years uh, lend themselves to that. And like I said, I don't want to say comfortability, but um, I think there was you know, when she first uh, went to apply for a job with the federal agency, they tried to hire her for a GS5 classification. She told them that uh, she was pregnant. And so they, they hired her for a GS2 typist um, position. And she accepted it. And I think her words are like, that's, that's the way things are right now. And so I think amongst other things like it pretty shows shows you pretty clearly like the the evolution and and progression of just um i don't want to say american politics just like morality when it comes to policy in general um and and because it's not as if and this is actually encouraging to me right it's not as if she was some you know let's burn the whole system down type individual like at that early stage in her life or career um it just sort of i think evolved which i think is encouraging in some ways say she was never a burn the system down type of person and I've seen some people from you know the far left say things like oh you know she wasn't that great she was operating within this corrupt system and she didn't do enough and things like that that's that's not who she was she wasn't a burn it down she worked within the system and helped shape the system I mean she did have you know a period of time that she was litigating for some really progressive things but she was never a burn the, burn the system down person. And if that's who you were looking for in her, you were going to be disappointed. Yeah. Uh, well, and, that, and I think the challenge now is that it's likely that her uh, successor is a burn it, <laughs> burn it down kind of person in the opposite sort of realm, which is much more far, uh, far, far right leaning. Um, I don't, I, I find it hard to sort of pivot to the conversation around sort of her appointment because it's like, it's such a glorious, wonderful life well lived. And like you said, we haven't had any opportunity to just reflect on it, to celebrate it, to learn from it. Um, and I think, I, I do think regardless of what happens, we're, we're going to be a worse generation, a worse people because of that. Like, I, I think a lot of people, and I'll shut up after this, but I think a lot of people like when, when figures- Nobody believes that. Yeah, 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 it's fine. <laughs> But when figures of her stature pass away, I do think there's a lot, especially in like younger generations, people who maybe don't get the chance to sort of live through that. They get, um, they get the opportunity to really learn and, and see who these people were. Um, and I think we're going to be missing a lot from that, if that makes sense. Like I think in any other time, her passing would be an opportunity to inspire so many young girls all over the country. Um, and I don't think we're going to get sort of that opportunity at least not right now and and that i think that's the most discouraging thing about all of this but 
Well, I mean, I think it is a really great learning experience, not just about her in general, but looking at where we've come from and what we were doing. You know, it's, I think it's really hard when you listen to your grandparents tell stories back in the old days, trudging through snow uphill both ways, you know, to really think that, you know, this is happening, you know, how much change can go on within a lifetime, Yeah. you know, for, for me in particular, you know, having gone through law school 20 years ago, yeah, that makes me feel old. Um, you know, they were still, there were still comments, you know, in, in class and in um, trial preparation classes and moot court things about how women don't wear pants in court. Mm. And, you know, we, that's what I was told, do not wear pants. And I, to this day, will not wear pants to court unless I already know the judge. I already know they're okay with it. I don't do it. Because there are still some judges out there that will hold that against me. And this is still, you know, it happens less now, right, than it did 20 years ago. But it's still happening in our lifetime. And to realize that having, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the first woman and was the only woman in her law school class to recognize that instead of, you know, the current classes, which I think are now skewing 60, 40 female, I think law school classes are actually predominantly female now. But to know that that's happened in somebody's lifetime, we're not talking about, you know, ancient history here. We're talking about things that, that are present history. And I think we all need to remember that and take it as that learning opportunity you know, not only for, you know, kids in school, but for all of us to just say, you know, wow, look how far we co- we've come. And obviously we have many more steps to go in our journey, but, you know, we have, we have moved the needle forward, you know, at, at this point, which is, you know, a good thing. So, yeah, you know, I think it's, that's important to remember. Well, I think that's a good segue into, you know, thinking about how we move the needle forward. Um, what, how, how far does the needle get? get moved back um, over the next few years. Now, look, there's a lot to sort of size up here. Many of you probably already, you know, heard a lot of the context or whatnot. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who I think is Satan uh, incarnated, um, has vowed to uh, nominate and feel. Um, well, not nominate. So the nomination comes, well, from, comes from Trump. The, you know, I don't say his name, the White House occupant on Saturday. <laughs> um, and then the Senate is going to, uh, Ms. McConnell's vow that the Senate will um, confirm the president's appointment. This is a complete 180 um, from what um, Ms. McConnell did in 2016 when Justice Scalia passed away in February of 2016. And his argument was that it's an election year. Uh, and so we're not going to, uh, we're not going to give President Obama's uh, nomination a floor vote. Uh, I, I thought that was ludicrous and unconstitutional in 2016. It still is. By all accounts, Neil Gorsuch is a very decent man, even though his ideology does lean conservative. Uh, but he's an illegitimate justice, in my view. Um, you know, I, I, I don't fancy or like Brett Kavanaugh, um, but I, I don't think he's illegitimate in the way that I do believe Gorsuch is illegitimate. So I want to just, you know, caveat Well, maybe he's that. illegitimate because Gorsuch should have had his seat. Have That's fine. Well, one, one of them shouldn't be there. How about that? There you go. <laughs> and, and so anyway, and I've heard all this talk about, you know, and Lindsey Graham, Senator from South Carolina, um, you know, a bunch of other folks talk about, 
you know, hey, previous quotes where they said, you know, if it was reverse, we would do the same thing. If uh, if there's a court appointment open in Trump's election year, well, we won't, you know, he the president should nominate or we won't appoint anyone. Yeah, look, there I'm are a lot, lot of tweets that are not aging well right now. And, and it's just like, look, these people don't care about tweets. They don't care about anything. They're evil, they're godless, they're soulless, and they have no morals or principles. So like, I'm done with the whole tweeting and the whole Facebook and here, here's what this person said before. Stop waiting for these people to have any sort of back, uh, backbone morals or principles. They do not. They have shown us consistently they have no morals or principles. Now is not the time to cry and whine about them having no morals or principles. Like no one who is reasonable when Mitch McConnell did that in 2016 would believe that if, if the situation had happened now in 2020, that he would do the, that he would do the opposite if a Republican nominee. Like no one believed that four years ago. Well, you know he's, he's trying to weasel out of it, now. right? Well, yeah. What, what's his? Because, uh, you know, it only mattered in 2016 because we were guaranteed a new president. We're not guaranteed a new president this time, so yeah, it's well, a different situation. That's an entire 11 months of a constitutionally, like, obligated term that the elected president had. So now this is a different argument, and I won't go down this rabbit hole. But now you need to have conversations about okay, well, what's the constitutionality of the of the term of the president? Like, if we're only going to honor it for three years at a time, then what is the last year for, and do we need to change that? Like, this is a deeper conversation that he's like. Well, festering. I would say the the deeper, perhaps rabbit hole conversation here is that there's it's not going to be done by November 3rd. That's too it is quick. not going to it's be not done. Gonna, that's not even a liberal bias thing, y'all. That is too quick to try. And it, no, it's by the, the processes set forth. Yeah. It takes six to eight weeks, even to go through the vetting, even yeah. to go through the nomination practice uh, policies, all of those things. And even if you ram somebody through, which I would say they've done the past couple of times. You know, they've gotten it. Yeah, they've gotten these nominees through in what, six, seven, eight weeks. That's extremely ordinarily fast for what we're talking about. So even if we take that accelerated time frame, we're talking about a confirmation after the election. So not only is it that we're sitting here with, you know, a president that's seeking re-election, then we don't, we're not sure whether he will be re-elected, right? We're potentially looking at, and probably, not even potentially, probably looking at a confirmation in a lame duck term, because whoever, you know, even if, you know, Biden doesn't win, the White House doesn't turn over, certainly the Senate's makeup will change. We're not sure how much, but it will change. So now you're looking at a Senate with at least some of its membership, and fine, it's not a majority, but some of its membership not being elected by the people, not being representative of the people, because they've just lost their election, they've lost their mandate, but they're the ones making the decision now on a lifetime appointment on our highest court. That, to me, is extraordinarily troubling. Well, and there are several Republican senators who are retiring. We're guaranteed to have new senators. So, I mean, we know the logic doesn't add up. And look, so we're not trying to reconcile anything that Mitch McConnell does because he has no backbone. He's not principled. He's an evil, soulless, godless fascist. So let's put that out there and name it. Um, but just for in general, the Tell me lo- how you really feel, Fred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I cannot. I, I, when history books write, when, whenever America ends, it could be 20 years from now, it could be 300 years from now, um, Mitch McConnell will be the central figure of the fall of democracy. 
because whoever comes along 60 or 100 years from now, if America still lasts, like they're going to look at Mitch McConnell as a playbook. Uh, anyway, different conversation. But um, I, I, I find, I think the, the biggest trouble, and it's not me trying to like understand what these people are, what they believe, but like everybody keeps saying we're X amount of days from an election. Elections already happening. It is election day. Like this isn't 1980. Everyone doesn't go and vote on the Tuesday in November anymore. Like there are quite literally millions of people who have already voted for a new president, for new sentiment. For, and so I, I think that is where, that is where one, I don't see, I haven't heard that in the mainstream sort of media or from any Democrats either. And that kind of troubles me. Because that should be, I think, a little bit of a louder piece is like, hey, people are already voting. Like, this is a little bit absurd. I think what we need to do as a party is like, look, go ahead and start naming all of the reasons why this just isn't politically wrong, why it is constitutionally and morally wrong, and set up a very solid playbook for what happens after November 3rd. And my only concern is I don't see that happening to the extent I would like to see it happening right now. And maybe that's because people are still taking the time to like, hey, all right, you know, we still want to, you know, in some ways honor her life. And I get that. And that might be what Democrats are doing. You know, and I know you're going to hate me for saying this, but this is why I miss John McCain. Um, because he's not perfect. He didn't always do what I wanted him to do, but he would be the one standing up right now. He'd yeah. be the one saying this is wrong. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I appreciate his, his wife coming out this week. Um, I don't, do you say wife, ex-wife? I, you say wife. I, you say wife. I guess still wife, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, married, still in death, I guess. Um, but Cindy McCain coming out this week um, and, and saying, you know, that she was supporting Biden, that she'd seen him, that he was a great, you know, a great man who could really move this country forward, you know, carrying on, I think in small part, at least her husband's legacy, but she doesn't have the seat. She doesn't have the power, you know, and I think we all recognize that what we see in the news, what we see on the floor of the Senate is the tip of the iceberg as to what actually goes on. Yeah. You know, those those pronouncements from Mitt Romney and whoever else flip-flopping their position, he didn't just wake up one morning and decide oh, no. he was this. You know, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes pressuring that's going on. And, you know, if you don't have that person in the room, you know, like John McCain being like, no, step off with that pressure. I'm not, you know, I'm not here for it. And I'm providing cover for other people. You know, if you don't have that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to stand up against that, that pressure from your party. Yeah. You know, that pressure of, you know, saying, you know, I'm potentially going to, you know, not have funding for my next race because, you know, and do I really think that the Republican Party would pull funding from a sitting Republican senator? No, but who knows? You know, maybe they would actually be that petty and pull it and, you know, whatever else. And, you know, we need to have a conversation about money and politics at some point, because that to me is the biggest issue. Um, very not exciting to talk about, but the biggest issue in what's bringing down our, our democracy right now. And yeah, it's just, 
you need that counterweight and it just doesn't exist in the Senate. No, I mean, I think my hope uh, when he originally went to the Senate was that Romney was going to be that individual who bought some, who bought some levers, whatever word I'm trying to use of like common sense decency. Not that like I would expect him to change his policies or whatnot, right? Like, and, and to be totally fair, like this presidency from a policy perspective, Trump's is not different from what a Romney presidency would look like. So we probably still would have got the same tax bill, probably still would get Gorsuch. And I think Romney probably would have went with like an Amy Coney Barrett instead of a Brett Kavanaugh. But policy-wise, you still get the same thing. But I keep trying to tell people like rhetoric matters so much. Um, and, and, and also we have a pandemic and like, I think, I think Mitt would have been a much better handler of a pandemic. Like, like, I don't think he'd be a phenomenal president. I think life would be somewhat normal, so on and so forth. But the, the challenge this go around, like you said, is that I don't think I don't, I, I, there has to be a world where Republicans start thinking about what does life look like after Trump? It could be this January, it could be January of 2024, but that time will come. And I do earnestly believe it'll be this January. And it seems like if there, it seems like they've never thought about that. And if there is an issue they're going to think about that with, it has to be this one, because I do think there's a world like, like, I guess Biden wins, the Democrats win the Senate. It would not shock me to then see Trump put forth a nominee and McConnell in the Senate vote on them. And what kind of long-term message does that send? What kind of long-term impact is that on, on the American public when you've got a lame duck president and the lame duck Republican majority Senate nominating a lifetime appointment? Because that is, that is what I see happening, honestly. I think it's too quick to get it in beforehand. I think they will try to squeeze it in in the lame duck session. And, and more than anything else, honestly, I think that is a decision that will reverberate and have long-term consequences for the party in ways that other things they've done recently just haven't been able to, to you know, have long-term withstanding, at least in, 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 in the four years since he's been in office. Yeah, and right now we're in political posturing, right? You know, it doesn't really matter what anybody says, what, you know, what press conference they give, you know, Susan Collins in Maine, who's in a fight for her life, says, I'll hold the line. That's a political move. You know, either way that she goes, it's a political move. And who knows how she'll come down, you know, when it comes to brass tacks. But at the same time, you know, I still, you're going to laugh at me for this. I still want to hold out hope for the lame duck session that they will recognize they're a lame duck session and be like, no, we're going to leave this until after January. And I'm not laughing. I, I realize it's a fool's errand, right? Like it's not going to happen because, you know, I would, I would imagine what somebody like Mitt, Mitt Romney, who's, who's very religious has probably done is, you know, he would, I mean, he would tell you he's prayed on it. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> And when it comes down to it, he really, you know, fundamentally believes through his, through his prayer, however, you know, either in direct communications or whatever else, that the greater good is done by moving forward, right? Like, I think he genuinely believes that. And I just, I just wonder if that changes at all when it, when it's not political anymore and maybe everything is still political right just because you've lost this one seat doesn't mean you're done in politics forever but generally speaking like 
is there any reversal at that point? Because you're just like, screw it. I have nothing to lose anymore. You know, I'm not trying to win an election. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think there's a world and like, you know, everybody, I think anybody who knows me or listens to me or whatever will attest to this. Like, I don't have any expectation for anybody in the Republican Party right now to do anything other than what is best for them and cis white men um, and, and other people who, you know, subscribe to white supremacy. So that's my viewpoint. However, I don't think it's a pipe dream to think that in a lame duck session, some people would wise up and say, hey, no, maybe this isn't the right thing. I don't think they would do that out of any sense of like moral obligation. I think they would do that totally selfishly to think about, all right, I'm leaving this seat now. What is my ongoing legacy 20 or 25 years from now? Like, I do think a lot of them think like that. Like, you have to have some sense of like arrogance and cynicism in you to where you're always thinking about what are people going to think about me two decades from now to run for any of these positions. So I... Uh, that blows my mind. I mean, I don't care what the reason is <laughs> like for you doing the right thing. But to think that, I don't know, let's say Susan Collins loses to Sarah Gideon, you know, in Maine. Which it looks like it's going to happen. Which would be nice. Um, Cause man, she's just heartbreaker after heartbreaker, right? She thinks 20 years from now, anybody's going to know who Susan Collins is or remember her name or think about her. I mean, obviously outside of her face, like, yes, they really think that. <laughs> I, I don't doubt that. I'm just, <laughs> you know, the hubris involved in thinking <laughs> that she becomes other, anything other than a footnote in history is kind of astounding to me. Yeah. I mean, hey, like people get into this stuff for a reason, man. Um, here's, here's the thing. I, 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 think, I think there's a larger consideration here, mostly because not only do, you have, do we have a very, very good shot of, um, of a new president in January, we have a very good shot of a new Senate in January as well. And I, I think that is what sort of amplifies this and, and makes it look, I think anybody who's telling you they know what's going to happen right now is just lying to you, like point blank period. Um, like no one knows. And the reason for that is right. Even if we had a Senate map from 2018, you could make, you can make, you know, some closer uh, predictions and projections about what might happen, but there's a fairly tenable chance. And I, you know, Republican operatives and, you know, senators, whoever would tell you the same thing to a woman in private. Like, I think they earnestly believe you're going to have a change of party in both the White House and the Senate as well. How they navigate that long term and, and how that impacts their decision now, no one really knows. But like in Iowa, you know, I, I personally think Greenfield's going to beat Joni Ernst. I think Gideon's going to have uh, a strong showing and pull it out over Susan Collins in Maine. Um, I don't really like Ossoff over Purdue. I'm going to vote for him. I like the guy. He's a nice guy, but I don't think he'll win it. I think Mark Kelly wins in Arizona. Like there are three Senate races right there. You only need one more to flip it. Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. Barbara Boyer in Kansas. Like, I legitimately, earnestly believe Democrats are going to take the Senate. So, um, maybe you get a guy or like... End up tied. Huh? <laughs> end up tied. Well, yeah. Well, and then it's Kamala Harris who's the president of the Senate. Um, look, I mean, I think even... I, th I think uh, I think Lindsey Graham's going to lose, too. Um that's a different conversation. We should have that conversation later. But like, I, I put you this way. I'm we're okay gonna, with that. We're going to see when Jamie Harrison beats Lindsey Graham, we're going to see and hopefully cement the fact that when you run black progressives in states where black people live, you can win elections. Mike Epsey, if they gave him some money and investment, he could win in Mississippi. Why? Black people have largely not left the Confederacy. 
Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida are all at the least 25% black in their total populations. Democrats honestly should dominate politics in these areas because if you get black people to turn out, all you need to do is stifle off your moderate whites who think they're liberals in the cities and you can compete in every single statewide election. We won't go down this path. But anyway, uh, and so I think, I think there are five- I mean, how about the missed uh, opportunity in Kentucky? Oh, Charles Booker, I think, would be running neck and neck with McConnell right now. I, Speaking and, of black progressives in uh, challenging. Yep. We missed the boat on that. Amy's cool. Thank you for her service. She's not going to be Mitch. It's fine. Charles Booker would have the chance because he turned out a bunch of black folks in Louisville and Lex. Like, this isn't, like, complicated. It's not hard. Anyway, all that to say, um, I do think we pick up five Senate seats this coming uh, November. And so I think it all really just comes down to what what is the what is the calculus I think, I think we have a very good chance of it being tied in the Senate. And, yeah and i am much less confident than you are <laughs> in the change well, of white house at this point yeah i mean you you're you're always I, a little unfortunately um, i mean I, I like to tell everybody i really hope i'm wrong i yeah, really yeah, yeah. hope this election isn't anywhere close i hope it's a biden land, landslide but I, I'm not, I'm not sold on that right now. I'm just not. Why not? Um, unfortunately, I, I'm just not sure the motivation is there for people. Um, I mean, I know that the motivation to vote is there for, you know, for people who are really into politics, for people who are really involved, for people who are already tuned in and even those people who got really tuned in because of the 2016 election so i would say white middle-aged women right like you know much more and especially the ones on the progressive side are much more um are much more into things right now and likely to show up to vote but that's not who wins elections you know, sitting here in Maryland, Maryland can come out and 100% of the electorate can vote and it's not going to change anything. You know, like I tell everybody, you need to have a candidate that makes a lower income person living in the city, because, you know, generally speaking, A, that's where the Democratic voters are, um, and B, that, you know, that's where, you know, kind of these, these pockets of people that we need to come out and vote are, you need to convince that lower income person af after he or she has worked two jobs that they need to stand in the rain or the snow or whatever else in line for 45 minutes when they're dog tired to cast their vote. And I'm just not convinced Biden-Harris is the ticket that makes people want to do that. I would generally agree with you. The reason why I disagree is because I've spent the last two years kind of traveling all over this place. And I think there's been a lot of uh, organizing and sort of community coalition building amongst local folks that are going to drive turnout around local issues. And I think it'll be a byproduct of, we need new judges, we need new district attorneys, we need to defund the police. While you're there, vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But these are the real reasons why. Like, I think we've made a lot of traction as far as in, um, in a lot of, I, I, mean, I yes, I think we can made a lot of traction in, in higher educated, higher income, suburban people with that kind of stuff. But again, I just, 
Well, I just I mean, don't see it for, you know, the vast majority of the pop. I mean, you're not going to sell that to, I don't know, rural Alabama, right? Like, it, well, what part of rural Alabama am I going to, am I, are we talking about the black belt or are we talking about like, you know, white redneck Talladega Confederate Alabama? You know I'd say I mean? either one. I and I'd say, you know, especially, you know, and I chose, you know, I have a really good friend from Alabama, so sorry about that, um, for, for targeting Alabama, but it's, everything is so entrenched there. The racism is so entrenched there. The social stratas are so entrenched. It'd be a real hard argument to make that anything, especially on the national stage, even locally, that it's going to change who, you know, how my life is going to be in either respect, you know, either as, you know, the white good old boy or in the black belt. It's just not changing. But and I, go ahead, sorry. lower races don't drive people out. I mean, you can, maybe you can say, okay, my sheriff is racist and I have a minority sheriff that's running against him and I'm really excited about those races don't drive turnout. I mean, they may individually, but in general, they just, they don't drive turnout. Yeah. I think we just, uh, I think we just differ <laughs> on, on, on this one because I, I don't think uh, the people who, who Democrats need to turn out to win statewide races and win the white house. I don't think we need to be convinced that things are going to change in the next year or two or in the next term. I, I think a lot of the activism, especially this year has centered around a lot of education that we haven't had before. And I think folks are starting to understand that like electoral politics is one of a dozen different things that lead to a more equal and just society. And it's like the other 11 things are equally as important, but you got to do this one thing. And I do honestly think that that message over and over and over again from a variety of different places, not from like politicians lecturing people on the importance of voting, but from things that people sort of actively engage with on a daily basis, whether that's athletics, whether it's entertainment, whether it's, you know, uh, celebrities, whether it's, you know, local candidates, whether it's all the dope organizing and community work that's happening in cities all across the country. I do honestly see a shift in the messaging there that I think is important and imperative. And I think we'll see sort of lend itself to, to more turnout. Like the only sort of a contemporary, mark we have for this, I think really is 2008. And I think there was a naivety amongst all people, to be totally honest, that like hope and change is coming. And, and, I, and I think we, we, we've wised up. And I think 2012 was just a matter of, oh, my man's Obama, we're going to revote for him, you know. But I, I think since then, in the 12 years since then, one, that's a long time. But then two, I think there has been a lot of progress and change in how we educate voters and how we do messaging and so on and so forth. You know, I, I, I like um, I, I like the chances of, of, of driving turnout. I think people are engaged and enthusiastic, but that's, uh, that's, that's my optimistic viewpoint. To that end, um, the, the two, I think the likely, the two likely nominees are uh, Barbara Logano, I believe her name is. She's a, um, a uh, judge from Florida, and uh, Amy Comey Barrett, who is a staunch Catholic, uh, used to being an academic at the University of Notre Dame, was appointed as a federal judge by Trump, I believe it was May of 2017, um, confirmed in October of 2017. She was, at, uh, I think she was the second pick. Um, Kavanaugh, he gave it to Kavanaugh, but it was between Kavanaugh and Barrett. I mean, conflicting reports might go back and forth. Um, either way, we're getting a woman. The president has said he's going to nominate a woman to the seat. 
Um, which uh, <laughs> I don't even really know how to pose this question. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, which would you prefer? Uh, what What is, if you had to predict an outlook on what happens and what takes place, fill us in. I, I mean, I just, I'm happy it's going to be a woman. <laughs> can I, can I just, can I leave it at that? I mean, yeah, yeah that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think it is going to be Barrett. I mean, I think everybody in the, yeah. in the news media, you know, has picked up on it. The, the White House has more leaks than a sieve. So, you know, if it's, I would find it very surprising to, you know, for these leaks to be untrue. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, because Barrett was, I think, on that short list, I think she's already gone through at least part of the vetting process, which means, yay, we can ram it through even faster, right? Because part of it's already gone, uh, part of the process has already gone on. So, you know, I mean, I think it is probably going to be her. Um, I'm not, I'm not wild about her. I, I'm less concerned about the whole Catholic and, you know, random sect of Catholicism and whatever, you know, what people want to do in their private lives is, is fine, whatever. Um, you know, and I haven't, I haven't read enough of her decisions to, to know how much does she follow the law and how much does she follow her faith and yeah. those sorts of things. And I fundamentally disagree with discounting somebody because they are X, Y, or Z. And I mean, X, Y, or Z, because they are super religious, because they're not religious, because they're this color or this race or, you know, this ethnicity, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't like that, that stuff. Um, you know, if you're, if you're the, if you're sitting on the high court, you have to look at the laws and you have to look at how the applicability of the laws. Yeah. And, you know, disagree with the way Scalia comes down all day long. He still had a legal approach to how he looked at everything. That was very consistent. He, Right. Absolutely. I mean, as consistent as you possibly can get. And it was legally based. It wasn't yeah. because, yeah. you know, of his religion, of his personal views, of his whatever. It was legally based. Yeah. And I may not agree with the conclusions, but I respect how he went about things. You know, so, you know, I'm not going to toss somebody because they're Catholic or because, you know, whatever. I mean, I think we can all, well, maybe not all, but, you know, if I'm sitting on the bench and I'm asked to apply a law and, you know, Supreme Court's a little bit different, but, you know, the law says X, even if I don't think X is correct, I'm bound by that law. So if you don't like the law, go look, go to the lawmakers right. and say, change this law. You right. know, we start having a little bit of a problem when it's constitutional application, you know, like right to privacy, you know, things like that. And, you know, which is, of course, where Roe v. Wade comes in. But, you know, I, I can't, I can't make a decision about somebody because, you know, I mean, a Republican president is going to, you know, put somebody 
or nominate somebody who's going to be right-leaning. They just are. I mean, where they are on the right spectrum, I I don't expect anything different with them. It would be foolish of me to do so. What I respect in jurists, what I respect in presidents, frankly, is using the law, using, you know, well-reasoned, logical procedures, perspectives in formulating action and in formulating decisions that have absolutely nothing to do with your personal opinion because your personal opinion shouldn't have anything to do with it. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other night who said, oh, would you take that job? And I was like, of course. I mean, to be able to be on the forefront and, you know, look at all of these cases that are the cases of our day, you know, some of them more exciting than others, but, you know, to be able to just delve deeply into that and figure it out is something that's really exciting and really important. He's like, oh, but you'd have to be off of social media and completely isolate yourself. That's fine. I said, well, yeah. Oh, oh darn. You know, but I also, I also disagree with that. You know, I think that, you know, and that was, and he was coming from the Ruth Bader Ginsburg perspective where she did, she didn't watch the news. She didn't look at what was going on because she didn't want to be swayed by public opinion, Mm -hmm. which I don't necessarily agree with. I think you have to take the temperature of the country and let's say everybody, I don't know, everybody in the country believes in something abhorrent. I don't know, 60% of people think that, you know, gay rights shouldn't, shouldn't be a thing, right? I'm not saying that you should go along with that 60%. You know, you look at the law and see how it's applied, but you, I think it's important to also look at what's on the other side and look at public opinion and say, you know, I'm coming down for gay rights. I understand, you know, that this is not going to be a popular opinion. However, it's what's in the law. It's, you know, it's well-founded. It's right. You know, this is what we need to do. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, a thousand percent agree. I mean, I think to your point, like, um, I think I've, RBJ initially, RBJ, uh, RPG initially thought like Roe was, uh, um, was a, li- a little bit of an overreach, I think. And I think her justification there was that, look, we made a blanket assertion based off the most extreme abortion law on the land, which at the time was Texas. And rather than simply, you know, either kicking it down the road or making the basis of judgment off, you know, maybe states who had less abortion or less restrictive, rather, abortion laws, um, Roe v. Wade stemmed from the one that was most extreme. Texas still hasn't changed much. Um, but I think that points to who just who she was as a jurist, right? Same thing you could say with Scalia. I put it to you this way, and I'll you know kind of we'll start to close out here. This I'm I'm not gonna I'm not one of those like folks who's like oh everything will be all right, even though I do earnestly feel like that. And I don't know if that just comes from like growing up black in America. It's just like things will be fine. Um, like I really just don't stress a whole lot just because like my entire life has just been <laughs> countering racism and overcoming it. People are like, oh, the court's just gonna, just, you know, if it's six to three, it's just gonna become more racist. I'm like, okay. Um, but this has backfired on Republicans before. I mean, they thought that they had their, you know, six to three, seven to two, just wonderful change when Reagan nominated Sandra Day O'Connor. And it turned out O'Connor was committed to being a fair middle ground judge. Now she was definitely still a little center to the right, but they, they thought they had- he wasn't what it was expected either. I mean, we've had that happen. They, they thought they had what they think we have now before. And so I think, and, and I do believe this about justices now, I, I think they are more inclined and in tune with 
what is my historical legacy and what is right legally. I don't think anybody wants to be Roger Tawney. Um, I don't think that will prevent them from, you know, making certain decisions around, you know, things that are more right-leaning. I, I, I guess I'll culminate it this way, right? I'm not going to say I'm not concerned about Roe v. Wade because I'm not a woman. So I won't say I'm not concerned about that. What I will say is I do think the more politicized things with, with, with like a Judge Barrett and a Judge Justice Roberts and even maybe a Justice Kavanaugh, I think the more politicized things are likely to um, not be struck down or withstand because I think, for example, Roberts, I am not saying I like Roberts, so let's be clear. But I do think Roberts has- He's also a keen, not as right-wing as we thought he was gonna be. Exactly. And he has a keen, I think, appreciation and understanding of where we are politically right now. Like I do honestly think Roberts thinks he is, he is single purveyor of democracy at this moment. And look, I, I think if Biden wins, I think he goes back to being more right-leaning now. But I, I think right now, in his view, he's holding the fabric of the republic together. And it's like, therefore, on these more political issues, I, I've got I've to make sure we keep some balance. So I'm more concerned long-term as far as things like climate change, as far as inequality, as far, those types of things, for, you know, where, where I think we're going to see more inequality, more extremism, with a with the right leaning court, as opposed to the things that are just sort of cultural war based, because I do think like as jurists who have lifetime appointments, I, I think they do have a concept and an understanding of like long term consequences of these types of politicized decisions. So I'm not like woe is me, and the, the final reason I'm not woe is me is like the 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 easiest way out of all this and into a brighter future is win the White House and win the Senate. Um, because I mean, that would be helpful. Yes. I'm on, I'm on board, you know? And so it's like, look, like, yes, things are bad, but if Joe Biden wins and we flip the Senate, there is finally the will. Like we could have, honestly, in 2009, we should have made Puerto Rico and DC states. We had a supermajority, different conversation. We'll go back to that. Um, but the political will, I don't think was there nationally for that right now at DC, at Puerto Rico, if they end up confirming Barrett in the lame duck session, which I do honestly believe is going to happen, then just add two or three justices um, and worry about the consequences later. And I think all those things are going to happen. So all that to say. Oh, I don't like worry about the consequences later. Whew. Huh? Worry about consequences later. That's never a good thing to tell politicians. Yeah, yeah, you got to because you can't, Democrats keep trying to play a game on uneven ground. It's like you, you can't. You, you can't keep bringing water guns to an AR-15 show. And it's like, you know, I love Michelle Obama, but when we go high, when they go low, we go, no. Like going high has led to what? Two thirds of the justice on the Supreme Court being nominated by presidents who didn't win the popular vote. F that, okay? We have been playing on a playing field that is not level against a party that is immoral against the true evil empire. And Ronald Reagan said that he was talking to himself and his own party for 40 or 50 years. And I'm just done with all that. And, and I'm encouraged because I do think finally Democrats are starting to wise up to look, you cannot go another 20, 30, 40, 50 years playing this game on such uneven turf. Eventually you got to grow a pair of ovaries and fight back. And I, I, I would like to think that's finally coming into fruition. Um, but yeah, that's our show.
Uh, any, any parting shots? Tune in next week to hear Fred rant about another topic. <laughs> I think, I think we got, I it's, think fun. We got, it's fun for the whole family. I think we got equal airtime in this one. That's probably true. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like, I like your rants. That's why you're, we do this. You're an equally good ranter. Like, I can hold my own in the rant sphere. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually, that's part of my brand. Like, you know, having legendary rants is like, you know, what I'm, what I'm known for. It's gotta happen sometimes. It's yeah. gotta happen. Um, rest in peace, Justice Ginsburg. The first debates Tuesday. You gonna watch? She no. says no. Um, <laughs> I say no with a face of disbelief. <laughs> like, why would you even ask me that? I mean, I, 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 I I can't, I mean, number one, I stopped watching the White House occupant a long time ago because there is nothing that he does that doesn't just make me viscerally angry. Oh, you're and not I tired of winning? Yeah, I'm so tired of winning. We're going to win. Um, and I just, you know, there's only so much time that I have to do yoga in a day and I can't spend 23 hours doing yoga to try and release all of the anger that builds up from this sort of thing. But I mean, I'm also just sick of the, political back and forth and micro analyzing and everything else because I just don't think it happens so I mean I'm going to keep you know organizing phone banks organizing volunteers to get out the vote in swing states do the work do the work um and then I might actually do some work that pays me too you never know might get crazy with it hey well we're gonna win and you're gonna get tired of winning because we're gonna win so much and, oh, and, that and, will haunt me. <laughs> and and that's what it's about. We're gonna make America great again. Okay, I'm done. Um, that yeah, voice not, will haunt me. Thank you. I know. For that. I'm not. I'm not watching it either. It's fine. Uh, I'm looking forward to perfecting my Joe Biden impersonation, though. Like I've gotten the last two presidents pretty good. Like Obama, my Obama impersonation is like perfect. And Trump's pretty good too. Um, I never really got W down because it's just like, I don't know. You got to talk in like a little, little cadence, and you know, you gotta. Uh, you know, you got, you got, you got to struggle to find your words a little bit. Anyway. All right. Um, yeah, we'll see y'all next week. Thank you for joining the base. We got a special guest next week, by the way. Um, oh, yes, we do. Yeah. Getting the band back together. Yeah. And so actually Becca probably will watch the debate because we got to be able to talk about it, but. <laughs> nah. Oh, thank you for joining the base. Like the show, share it with your friends. Listen to Spotify, Apple. Y'all be great.